Hey everyone, welcome back to an exciting episode of Sapphire Stories. Today I'm sitting here, well, on Clubhouse with Michael, who is the founder of Lalo. Michael, why don't you introduce yourself and share your origin story with our audience? Yeah, thanks for having me, Thomas. So uh, my name is Michael Weeder. I'm co-founder, president, and CMO of Lalo. Uh, in Lalo, really, we launched almost exactly two years ago. So it's been ten, March 13th, 2019 was our launch date publicly. And there was plenty of hustle that went in before that, but it all started, my, my co-founder Greg and I um, started the company and it kind of just stemmed from a point of seeing our friends and family starting to have kids, the process of shopping for all the stuff that you need to have when you have a kid. And just something didn't feel right. You know, the connections that consumers had with the brands didn't feel right. Um, the way brands were celebrating parents or, or not celebrating parents really didn't didn't feel right. The trade-offs between price and quality and aesthetics didn't feel right. So we we looked at all of that and we said there needs to be there needs to be a company a brand that's built for our generation of parents. Like why isn't there a brand that's building that deeper connection? Why is there a trade-off between price and quality and aesthetics? It just doesn't make sense. So we dove in. We launched our stroller first, and then we quickly expanded our product assortment to just start selling our best-selling high chair. And from there, um, you know, wanted to just build better products. So our high chair turned into a play chair. We launched, a, and then we launched a play table. And kind of the, the rest is history. I mean, we've we've grown a ton over the last two years, um, especially over the last year and change. Um, but really, all rooted in creating a brand that really believes that parents deserve better. Um, and really wanting to get closer to the customer. Awesome. Can you walk me through when you first had the epiphany and what that was like? Yeah, so Greg Greg and I used to work together at a, a tech company, fast, uh, fast tech company called Way Up, where Greg was the fourth employee and I was the fifth employee. He had gone on to become the VP of sales at Artsy. I stayed on to lead brand marketing and partnerships at Way Up and stayed for about three and a half years. And we were just catching up, old friends, old work friends, having dinner. And Greg was like, I saw this thing, like, this is crazy. I think I think there's something here in a business. And I was like, I'm in, let's do it. And that was at Who Kitchen um, by Union Square in New York City. And from there, we, we jumped right in, in terms of um, like, where do we start? And the first place we started was with a survey. So we wanted to just validate the idea and validate that customers and parents were actually having this problem that we perceived with our friends and family. And very quickly in that data, it proved to be true. So we knew something was there and we, neither of us were physical product people. We both came, um, both entrepreneurial at heart. Lalo is my third company that I've started. Um, Greg entrepreneurial at heart and, you know, never having started anything, but like always in different hustles and, you know, through his family too. Um, but we never done physical products. So we had to surround ourselves and fill the gaps and figure out how do you actually make products? So there was an education that went into that. So we brought on a product development team. We brought on some industrial designers to help us start thinking through the initial set of products and diving in. We took our first trip to China to learn about the manufacturing world and international supply chain. Um, and more than anything, you know, we were learning a new language over the first few months of the business. We were learning different lingo and different terminology and different ways of running businesses because physical products and D2C brands, they just, it's, a, it's different. It was different than the worlds we were exposed to before. So we really had to sink our teeth in um, and be fully aware of what we didn't know so that we can, you know, quickly ramp up on that learning curve. 
How much capital? How much capital is typically needed to kick things off? I want to hear more on what life was like before uh, you were able to fundraise. Yeah. So that was another question we had, you know, or another thing we had to learn is like, how much money do we actually need to do this thing? And that all started in terms of what does it take to build products? So it's related to that same learning curve I was talking about before, but Greg and I were working nights and weekends on this for a while. So, uh, you know, it was probably seven, eight months that we were like hustling on the idea, just trying to figure it out, getting our first prototypes in, you know, and we had our full-time job. So we were, you know, burning um, at every end. But then when we went full-time on it, it was about April 1st of 2018, we went full-time on it. We had gotten our first prototype. We had a first initial like friends and family money that came in to help support the idea. But we didn't take a single dime. It wasn't until the following December that we started paying ourselves. Um, so we were, you know, obviously fortunate. We, we, reckon, we recognize that for a lot of founders, this isn't really possible, but we were fortunate enough to be able to not take salaries for a bit of time um, just off of our previous roles um, and savings and just like, and, our, and, our, and our, honestly, our wives, our partners supported us for a little bit. So, you know, and they, that was a huge, a huge benefit of having really supportive partners in it all um, because not paying yourself, there's a hustle. But, you know, I think, even still to today, I talk to Greg about this all the time. Like when I had a job, like when I worked for a company, I knew when payday was. I still don't know when payday is. Like I don't know when my paycheck hits my bank account. Um, and I probably should because like our, our employees, um, you know, count on that. But I, I have no idea when payday is. It's not why I'm in this. Um, my payday hopefully is a few years down the line as, as well as the rest of our team. It's like the big payday. But, yeah, you know, in, in those early days, like, there was no payday. We just we just hustled. I love it. Why did you get into the industry that you're in today, and why like why why are you so passionate about it? So I have a really interesting career path that spans a bunch of different industries. I was in music and entertainment, then I was in sports, and then I was in fitness, and then I was in ed tech, HR tech, and now I'm in you know D to C, baby hard goods. And I think my, my nature is I sink myself into whatever I'm doing. And there are definitely common threads between everything I did and, you know, and everything I'm doing is around business and brand building throughout my career. But I like to sink my teeth fully into things, become as much of an expert as possible in it. Um, and ultimately, this was aligning with my next life stage. My, my wife and I, when Greg, when Greg approached me with the idea, my wife and I had just started trying to have our first kid. So this was something I felt like I was building for myself and I was building for my friends. And it's really, really amazing um, to be the consumer of your products. I have a 13 and a half, half month old daughter and being her, seeing her use the products every day is like such an amazing joy. Um, so being, you know, building that, that's, that's like enough motivation right there in and of itself. When did you get your first sales? So March 13th, 2019, that's when we launched. So actually Ben Zeiss is on this call. Ben wanted to make, Ben was our first customer. Ben was an, is an investor. He was our first customer. So he, he made sure we opened up the, the payment portal to him first. So he must've, I think he bought on May, March 11th or 12th <laughs> to make sure he had that first customer, uh, that first customer title. And we're so fortunate for Ben and, you know, not only here, first customer, he's a repeat customer, an amazing gifter, an amazing advocate. So, you know, we're so glad uh, 
Ben's tuning in here, but um, he's our first ever customer. So I think we owe, we owe that to him and we'll have that title forever. But after that, we launched publicly on March 13th and we started seeing sales come in, launched our stroller, had amazing traction right out the gate. Um, we knew the brand was going to resonate. We put a lot of work into developing a brand and positioning and, and a, a visual identity that we knew would resonate. Um, one interesting thing on March 13th, Instagram crashed for almost 24 hours. So we had to really like hustle like for those first sales and make sure they'd come in and relied a lot on press to drive that. But, but then, you know, Instagram came back, but we'll never forget that. It was, a, you know, maybe never launch a company on the 13th. That's a lesson. But, um, you know, Jessica, I'll never forget on the first, it must've been the second day, actually. Once Instagram came back, Jessica Alba commented on an Instagram post and we're like, what, what's going on here? So then she became an advocate of the brand and using our products and, and you know, Little thing, little wins like that with influencers and celebrities that we set up in the beginning really help uh, kind of spark some of the the movement and growth at Lala. Where did you go to get a hold of someone like Jessica Alba? So she got a hold of us. So she just commented on her Instagram that she loved the product, and so then I DM'd her actually at the time. Like I was working, you know, we had uh, kind of a freelancer I was helping on some marketing stuff, and she. Uh, we saw it come in. So then I took up the conversation to start DMing her as the founder. You know, I found, I found that a lot, you know, we have amazing team members that do incredible work, but you know, there's often times that the, the power, power of founder holds to, to gain access and then set your team up for success is really important. So, um, you know, being able to, to show her that I really cared to have that communication, um, got the conversation started and, you know, subsequently had many calls with her, but, you know, a lot of our a lot of our influencer and celebrity stuff um, has been inbound. People that just love the brand. That's been a big part of you know the the success of our influencer program. I get you know I've had multiple clubhouse rooms folks on brand building, marketing, and then somehow influencer always comes up. And you know the the key to influencer marketing is really you just got influencers are people. They're not a marketing channel, so you got to treat them like humans, like people with empathy, and you know, it will go a long way. How do you get them to come across what you post? Was it somebody just tagging them that is close to them? So no one tagged them, but uh, one of the families that we had shot with, we did our initial shoot in LA because we were launching a stroller first and it was the middle of winter in New York. So we shot in LA, so it would look a little sunnier. Um, and we, one of the families that we shot with was somehow new, new Jessica through the LA scene. And I think that's how she got exposed to it um, originally. And then obviously, you know, having a strong visual identity and brand voice that, you know, obviously translated into her, her falling in love and great products. That's awesome. Besides the influencer marketing who love your product organically, were there any other ways that you reached out to people through Hustle that worked? Through Hustle. I mean, press... And PR is a lot about hustle. It's a lot about getting out there and putting yourself out there. And I think that's really important. And press doesn't just come because you're in existence. And then outside of that, I mean, we were, you know, infiltrating Facebook groups and mom groups and, you know, trying to, to get in with the end user in any way possible. There's a really popular uh, Facebook group with a ton that it has a ton of moms in it. And we, we quickly, you know, figured out who, who led that group, who was the moderator, how do we get her on our side? And then how do we make her a brand advocate? And that ended up 
you know, leading to a ton of, a ton of growth and a lot of hustle there. Um, but I mean, there was, I mean, we were meeting up with, you know, we did, we do, we do demos, um, of our products. If people want them, we had a showroom in, in Soho in New York city when we launched, but we would, we'd go and hustle to like get those, to get those demos done. And um, we'd go to people's homes. If a customer had an issue, I remember Lauren, who's our first employee early on, a customer had an issue. They couldn't figure out how to fold our stroller and they were in Hoboken, New Jersey. And Lauren got on the path train. She went to their house and she showed them how, how it was done and walked them through it. And, you know, we're big believers that in the early days, you need to do things that don't scale. It's not about automation. It's not about doing something that it hits the masses. It's about doing things that make an impact and make a difference so that customers remember and share. Um, and that's a big part of, you know, I think why we've had, you know, strong brand salience, strong brand equity. Um, and, you know, uh, honestly, really has helped, you know, fuel the word of mouth flywheel. What are some of the current challenges that you uh, have faced in the past and how did you overcome them? And by challenge, can you think of like a particular one where it just looked like your backs were against the wall and it didn't look too good? Yeah. I mean, COVID hit, right? So COVID hit, our bank account wasn't flush with money. You know, we were a growing startup that needed to go out and uh, continue growing. We Business was strong, but like as a growing startup, um, we didn't have a ton of money in the bank and we, we didn't, and we were about, we were in the middle of starting a fundraise at the time. And we decided we kind of just like froze and like, what's going to happen? The fundraising, you know, fundraising kind of just halted. No, no investors were writing checks in the like first two, three weeks of COVID because no one knew what was going to happen. Is the world going to implode? The market's going to crash. Like what's, what's going to happen? Are people going to stop buying stuff? Um, and so we went back to all of our initial investors very um, shamelessly and said, like, hey, we need we need you guys to step up here and throw a little more money in the business to keep us alive. And luckily, we have amazing investors. We had a we have a pretty robust cap table and they all stepped up. They funded the business and we grew over 300 percent in 2020 because of that. Um, you know, we really you know, we had our backs to a wall to a degree. Um and that was, you know, just created so much momentum coming out of that. And, you know, with COVID, with so much moving online, we didn't really need to pivot the business. We needed to just keep operating and keep operating with our heads down and, and focus on the stuff that really mattered. And ultimately, we were able to move the needle to see tremendous growth. Besides your overhead with your employee, what are the biggest costs in your industry? Uh, so mainly variable costs in our industry, right? So inventory, and cost, you know, the, and that ultimately comes down to the cost of capital more than anything. Um, but managing cash flow, so it's more less about the expense, but more about the cash flow component to it. It's like how do you manage the cash flow to be able to afford inventory? Are there certain vehicles in which you can extend uh, extend terms so that you can pay it in a certain time that makes sense for the cash flow of the business? whether that's through debt or other vehicles or other you know, platforms that have popped up like Settle. Um, but there's, you know, that I would say, you know, is, is the number one thing that new entrepreneurs and, and uh, founders thinking about D2C and uh, businesses have to consider is like, how well do you understand cash flow? And Greg and I most certainly didn't understand it at the beginning. We've learned a ton and now have gotten pretty strong at it, but 
Um, that's definitely a major learning curve for anybody that's never been in this business. Got it. And what are some of the great marketing channels that are working right now that you would recommend people to take a look into? Yeah. I mean, I think everybody, when it comes to marketing channels, needs to number one, understand their customer and understand their business. And because the way you treat those marketing channels needs to be right for your business. So, you know, of course, you know, tried and true Facebook and, and Google, those will work for a lot of businesses, but not for every business. So you need to consider that, you know, it's a big part of our mix, but you know, we think about it very interestingly. We have a, a great team that um, isn't afraid to write their own playbook versus following the existing ones. And that's, you know, what we look for in, in all employees that we hire, are they willing to write playbooks, not follow them? Uh, and, you know, outside of that influencer, like I said, has been a major channel. PR has been a, a major channel, but we really, the core is anything that will add trust and validation to our products moves the needle. So if we can get an extra layer of trust and validation for parents that you know helps increase conversion tremendously. What do you recommend to founders today? If they are currently working a full-time job, but have that second idea, how do they leave their full-time job to pursue their dreams? Yeah. So first of all, I don't think you necessarily need to leave your full-time job to pursue your dreams. Like I think you should really make sure that you're, you feel like product market fit is validated to a degree that you have a really good handle on the business. Um, and that like, you're not going to have extra stresses outside um, of your job by, by leaving or in, in, as an entrepreneur by leaving your full-time job. You know, full-time job provides plenty of security. Like I said, Greg and I stayed in our jobs for six or seven months while we were fleshing out, getting our first prototypes because the stress of not getting paid for that extra amount of time would have would have definitely hampered our ability to, to work on Lala. So we felt it was less stressful to work nights and weekends until we felt like it was in a good place um, until we raised some money. But I would say when you do have that conviction, you just need to go for it. You know, there's, there's, you, you need to jump full on in, um, and run with it. But, you know, you, you have to feel like this is an idea. This is something the world needs. Um, and at the end of the day, you need to believe that like not investors, like you need to validate it through other channels, customers and, and yourself. Like that's it. Um, you're going to get plenty of investors and, and others that tell you it's a bad idea or it's not going to work, but you just, if you feel the conviction, you just need to go and do it. Speaking about fundraising and investors, what is it like when you're fundraising for the first time? It sucks. It sucks. Um, fundraising is not fun. And I, and I think, the number one thing is we don't look at fundraising as any sort of end goal. Fundraising is a means to an end. Um, and, you know, I think strong businesses should only fundraise out of you know, points of power and, you know, and, and when they, when they need to fuel some part of their business, it's not fun to be fundraising because you need capital to stay alive. And that's you know, obviously at the beginning to get a business off the ground. That's true then too. Um, but number one, you're going to get a ton of notes for you know, for every yes, you're probably going to get at least 10 no's. Um, for most businesses, obviously, we all hear the stories of people walk in one one meeting and they have a term sheet for $100 million. That's not that's not the norm. Um, you know, most time you're hustling. Like our cap table at the beginning, 
we have 70 people on our cap table. It's a lot of people. In order to get 70 people on your cap table, you probably have to talk to somewhere between three and 500 people, um, if not more. So we had to just get out there, make ourselves extremely vulnerable and keep refining the pitch, right? Like every time you go in, going in, every time you get a no, you have to really think to yourself, um, like, why did I get that no? Is there something that I can change for my next conversation to turn that no into a yes? Um, and you need to be extremely, extremely humble. We have a few more minutes before we wrap up our conversation, but I would love to hear what makes your brand so great and what are you excited about this year? What makes our brand great? Our brand, our brand is great because we care about parents. Like we care about parents and the customer and their little ones in a way that we don't believe any other brand in our space does. You know, our name Lala stands for love all little ones. And I think that's extremely intentional. And everything we do is rooted in, in, in love for our customer and their babies. And, um, and I think that is the common thread that comes through all of our marketing, through our products, through our team. Uh, and that's really what makes our brand special. Awesome. And what are the current challenges that you are facing right now? And maybe there are things that people in the audience can do to maybe help out. Current challenges for our business. I mean, our current challenges for our business are, you know, continuing to sell more product, right? How do we grow? You know, when you grow, you know, 300 plus percent in a year, how do you, you know, get that going the next year again and continue the trajectory? Um, and then, you know, we're, we're looking into more products. How do we get more products to our customers? So I think those are the kind of opportunities, um, which, you know, in some respects are a challenge uh, that Lala has. Um, before we close our conversation, I want to hear, lastly, what are some of the advice that you've been given from mentors and how have you been able to apply them to your business? Oh, advice from mentors. Um, never good at answering this question. It's never top of mind to me. Um, but there's, there's a great line. We were, Greg and I have a podcast, quick plug for our podcast called the dad pod, where we, we interview entrepreneurs, uh, that are dads and doing cool things in the world. Um, and we had Will Jadara, who's going to be, he was a guest on his episode comes out in a couple of weeks. Um, and he had an amazing quote that I love where he said, I think it came from his dad, that, you know, um, growth, growth comes in cans um, and, you know, and failures come in cans. And I love that, right? Like the, the, the open mindedness, the ability to take on any challenge I think is really important to an entrepreneur to, to look at things, at opportunities and really go full steam ahead on them. And with an open mind is really important to success and shutting things down and being closed-minded is only going to lead to limited success or failure. Love it. And that's where I'll wrap up our conversation. Up next, we're going to bring people on stage. <laughs>